We always knew it was a big market. The hard part was more, are we gonna get in our own way? Because what happens is first there's the challenge of managing people one to a million, then a million to 10 million, and then going above 10 million is a very humbling experience. I'm a player. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. Don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Gregory Gallant, CEO and co-founder of MockRack, which provides a platform for connecting journalists with PR professionals and companies. Founded in 2009, they bootstrapped until 2022 when they raised $180 million. In this interview, we delve into the journey of scaling MockRack from a simple idea to a major player in the PR and media space. We explore the challenges and strategies involved in growing a SaaS business, particularly in the PR industry. Gregory shares valuable insights on management, product evolution, and market understanding that any B2B SaaS entrepreneur can learn from. Let's get into it. It was almost by accident that we found this market. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur, and then right when I graduated college, I, I started a podcast of my own, interviewing founders, but this was back in 2005 and was one of the first podcasts of its kind. So I had the founder of LinkedIn, Yelp, Vanguard Group, a whole bunch of others. One of the people I had my podcast was Ev Williams, who started Odeo. Odeo never worked out, but I followed him and I, I saw that he pivoted to a little side project called Twitter. So that led me to sign up for Twitter way early. I'm just at Gregory on Twitter or X as it's now known and later got that on Instagram too. So it's early adopting all the social media that we, just as it was coming out. First had the idea to launch a award show to honor the best of social media. So my co-founder and CTO, Lee and I first launched the Shorty Awards, the awards for best of social media. And that was kind of a joke. We built basically a website in two weekends. It was the first site where you could ever vote with the tweet. And it went viral. So within 24 hours of launch, it was covered by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC, TechCrunch, and dozens of other places. Ended up being a huge event, profitable in its first year. And then we saw, oh, wait, all these journalists are using social media to figure out what to write about. That's how we got all that press coverage. And it really struck me that we were so successful with the Shorty Awards and getting attention. So we thought, okay, there should just be a site where you could see all the journalists in one place and they could all have portfolios and show off their work. That was version one of MuckRack back in 2009. It was a free site for journalists and, and we were playing with a bunch of different ideas at the time. We were launching other websites, but we noticed that like MuckRack had a lot of resonance and we had over 10,000 journalists request to be listed on MuckRack. Just in that first year, we didn't spend a dime on marketing and it just got all this attention. It was really solving a need first for the journalism community. And then being in New York at the time, I kept running into PR people and they'd all say, oh, you do muckrack. We're using your website to figure out which journalists we should pitch. Oh, that's interesting. We have all this data that's really valuable to this profession. This profession is already using our website and knows our brand. The only thing we're not doing is charging for it. And also we didn't optimize for that use case. So when we started to think about it and talk to more people in the PR industry, we had a million ideas for tools we could build specialized for them to use our data to, to target the right journalists to reach out to. So then by like December, 2011, we relaunched the site. Uh, we actually rebuilt it on the back end completely from scratch. 
and we kept all the free stuff free, all the tools for journalists and all that. But then we launched a SaaS offering. We didn't even call it SaaS back then. It was a subscription plan for the PR community. And then that's what kicked it all off. After launching that, how long did it take you to hit first million in revenue? It was several years. I think it was like four or five years. If you look at our revenue chart, it's like kind of one of these curves that's all up into the right, but the kind of thing where it's just those first five years were a slog to get to a million. And now most months we're adding more than that in revenue. During that time, were you constantly iterating and trying different things and changing it up? Or you were just sticking with a vision and waiting it out? Constantly iterating in so many different ways. We were always adding to it. When we rebuilt it to be a SaaS offering, we did that in six months. So the functionality was very limited when we first launched and it was more of a point solution, but it was a valuable point solution because it did things that no one else did. Then we realized there was this opportunity to go from being this point solution, which at the time was helping customers have a little more insight into the right journals to pitch, to being a full-on software suite for public relations or corporate comms department. We were like, okay, well, the way Salesforce or HubSpot is to a sales organization, we want to be that for either an in-house corporate comms group or for a PR agency. And our customers now range in size from tiny startups to Fortune 500s and from mm-hmm. boutique agencies to the, all the largest in the world. It, it just always felt like there were a million things we knew we wanted to do. And the hard part was always just which thing did we tackle next? So you were quite clear on who the buyer is from the early days. It was mainly the question of what do we sell them? And how, how do we package it? Yeah, exactly. It was what do we sell them? What suite or breadth of functionality do we need to deliver them? And then it was also how to go to market. Because when we started... We were thinking that the customers would want to buy the way that we wanted to buy, which was just the base camp MailChimp model. Just go to the website and put in your credit card. I was adamant, oh, I'll never have a sales department. Everyone just sign up off the website. And then it turned out that it works great for small companies, but for big companies, they actually want to talk to a salesperson because you're at a big company. You're like, hey, I need someone to convince my boss that this is a good idea, convince my teammates it's a good idea, talk to my procurement department, talk to my security department, do all the stuff it takes for a big company to buy a new piece of software. And so that was a big learning. That was something where probably around when we were at like seven or 800K in ARR, we were like, oh, these bigger companies really want a sales team. And now we have our our go-to-market team in general, sales plus AEs plus SDRs is over a hundred people. So it's been quite the about base from how we thought we needed to go to market. Two observations about SaaS companies. Most end up going market over time as the deal sizes go up and retention gets better. This also means that pure self-serve through credit cards won't be enough anymore. This is unexpected for a lot of founders. They think everyone wants to avoid salespeople and just pay with a card. This is false consensus bias. It depends on your exact price points, but generally speaking, if your thing costs many thousands of dollars, a lot of companies want to talk to a human about it, especially if your product is complex and the customer needs are complex as well. Did you become sales first, sales led, over marketing led uh, around that first million? The way that I would describe it is that we always balanced 
I think a more product than kind of sales and marketing. So we've seen a lot of other companies. What happens is that many companies, either one dominates over the other. And even when that doesn't happen, that often there's very much an us versus them, that it's constantly sales being like, hey, if only they built a decent product, we could hit our numbers. Or the product tech team being like, hey, we're building this amazing product. Why can't these idiots over in the sales department sell it? I think we both had a lot of respect for the other side because I always led the sales and marketing side, but I'd done some coding at the beginning of the, my career. So I knew how hard that was. My co-founder led the tech side, but had done some sales on behalf of his own agency before I knew how hard sales was. So we always took this big effort every week. We'd get the entire company around the table back up until probably several million in revenue when everyone could fit around the table. And every week we just talk about how it's going. We made a big effort to make the tech side and the sales side and marketing all feel very much like one team. I think that was like a big part of the success because we never shipped a feature people didn't want. We were so plugged into what the customers wanted and the tech and product side were so focused on that. What we would build next was always what the customers were screaming for. And then when we released it, it would always make our current customers happier and then unlock a new group of people we could go sell the software to that maybe previously wouldn't buy because they wanted that one feature. That was like a really big part of getting it right as we scaled up into a few million in revenue. MacRec's growth stemmed from a well-balanced connect between product development and sales and marketing, focusing on what customers needed. Listen to this previous episode of Jisma, founder of Indinero, Talk about understanding customer needs. Go visit your customer and watch them use your product. Spend two hours with your most fanatical customers because the insights you're going to learn don't come from the first half hour. It doesn't even come from the first hour. You have to have their attention captive for two hours and then random stuff will come out from that. And don't get lazy. Do that even when you have 10, 20, 30 million in top line. As you started going towards 10 million in revenue, the next milestone, what changed in your product strategy, go-to-market strategy, if anything? It was more than the strategy. It was what had to change in the business. And it's a really interesting challenge where I'd say up into a million in revenue. And when you're bootstrapping, you're always constrained by how many people you can hire. To a million, it's still five or 10 people and everyone's in a room. You don't really have to think about policies or internal communication or org chart. And we didn't think about that stuff one iota because it always is fighting to survive and keep customers mm -hmm. and all that. And then going to 10, I'd say the hard parts was building out a management layer was one of the really big challenges because it, it's something we're now so, so much further along. It's fun. Something I haven't even thought about in a while, but I can recalling it, think how hard it was because it's hard enough to learn how to manage people, which you have to do when you're starting a company if you haven't managed people before, but then to have people reporting to you who are managers themselves and know how to spot a good manager and deal with the age old question, a lot of your great individual contributors aren't gonna make good managers is a really big challenge. So I'd say that was probably one of the biggest things was investing good managers and then also making sure that we really retain the talent. Because what I see happens to a lot of companies, especially bootstrapped ones, is that when they reach like a couple million in revenue, one of two things happen. Either they flip to lifestyle mode, like people say, oh, lifestyle business. And a lot of people mistake bootstrap businesses for lifestyle businesses. 
But a lot of bootstrap businesses, like we were always growing you know, faster than most venture-backed companies were, and we were reinvesting and operating as professionally as venture-backed company. And we kind of have a chip on our shoulder about that in terms of bringing on good people and reinvesting. But anyhow, I see a lot of people, they take one path, which is, hey, you know what? We're making $4 million a year. If I just operated at 50%, if I just stopped reinvesting and, and operated at 50% margin, I'll make $2 million a year. And that's pretty awesome, right? Two million a year is great. And I'll knock anybody for doing that, by the way. That's an awesome life. That's how it is when, you, when you're not growing the team. But that's one path. Or the other path people think you have to take is, well, we've reached a couple million in revenue. Now we got to raise venture and start spending more than we're making going big. But the path we took was in the middle where we're like, we're going to reinvest every dime so long as we leave a healthy cash buffer so we can make payroll and not go to jail. So leaving a healthy cash buffer for payroll, but aside from that, reinvesting every dollar, but also not raising money or spending more than we're making. And so we kind of took that path and it's a challenging path because you really have to execute right and you can't afford to make mistakes or too big of mistakes. But if you do it right, I think it's much more rewarding. And almost in a way, I think it's good that you can't make those mistakes because we've never... I had to do layoffs in our whole now 15 year history because we were never like, oh, let's go try this thing and hire 30 people in six months. And if it doesn't work out, we got to lay those 30 people off again, which would be hugely damaging to a culture. It was always slow and steady. Hey, we add another couple hundred grand in ARR. We'll hire another person and rinse and repeat and hire one person at a time. And it made it a lot more sustainable. And also I think leads to a healthier culture because you're adding people in a measured way. Once you were uh, around 10 million a year and you want to grow bigger, were, were you ever thinking like, I don't know if this market is big enough to, uh, to how many PR agencies are there? So how were you thinking about increasing revenue and growing even bigger? We always knew it was a big market, both because it's not just PR agencies, but it's any company big enough to have an in-house PR department. 100% of the Fortune 500 companies do PR, maybe except for, except for Tesla, because Elon likes to uh, do it himself. But every 499 of the Fortune 500 has a PR department. And then lots of businesses beyond that, mid-sized companies, foundations, government even. So we knew there was a big market there. And we, and we always knew there was a lot more beyond that. The hard part was more, are we going to get in our own way? The biggest change I saw approaching it after 10 million was bringing on an executive layer to the management team to keep growing it out. Because what happens is first, there's the challenge of managing people one to a million, then a million to 10 million. It's getting that management layer and getting good managers in place. And maybe you even have two layers of management. But it's still often the founder can know best on a bunch of stuff and you're just hiring people to execute. And then going above 10 million is a very humbling experience where very quickly in every function, you need to have an executive who can lead that function, who knows way more about it than you do. So a revenue leader who knows more about sales and marketing than you do, CMO, same with product and engineering, et cetera. Building up that executive layer was knowing that the TAM was there, right? If the addressable market wasn't, wasn't there to your point, then that wouldn't matter. We knew it was there, so we need to get the right team. And then along with that, we have to keep making the product better too and have the product do more because we find every time we added more to the product, it unlocked a bigger market. Within our market, it unlocked a bigger group that would want to use our software because we'd always find there are a lot of people who are like, 
hey, I love what you do, but you don't do X thing that I really need. Or, hey, this doesn't quite work for my market. So there's always best investing there also. How much were you looking at the competition? We look at them very closely for sure, because in our market, we have some legacy competitors who've been around for decades or in one case, over a hundred years before we started. We were always very attuned to them because a lot of our customers would be switching from their solution to ours. So it's a tricky balance. On one hand, we, we always tried to make sure that we never obsessed about them and that we did things our own way. And that was a big part of our success. Our whole thing was starting with the journalists and then getting into PR gave us a lot of advantages because we have all these journalists using our platform, whereas with all of our competitors, they don't have a part for journalists. They just went straight for the PR industry, but never established a connection with journalists. So there's a lot of stuff with our naivete coming into the market or figuring things out from first principles. It got us ahead. But then what ends up happening is that you have to really arm the sales team with good competitive intel because the competitors are doing the same and the competitors will try to spot your weakness or often just make up a weakness and have their sales team say, oh, you shouldn't buy Muckrack. They don't do X or they don't have Y or sometimes it's based in truth or sometimes we've had cases where it's just like, an outright lie, we'll never know if it's centralized from a competitor or just a rogue salesperson. We have to both arm our sales team to combat that, but we have to tell our sales team needs to explain why we're better than the competition. So if someone says, well, you know what? Muckrack seems awesome, but I'm using XYZ competitor now. And like, why should I go through the trouble of learning a new platform, getting someone through security and, and procurement? It's a lot of work, especially at a big company to switch a vendor. So our sales team needs to be educated to say, oh, you're using XYZ competitor. It doesn't do this and that. Or I think, let me show you Muckrack because I think we can do things in a much better way than, than the product you're currently using does. So it was more to be educated, to be able to educate about the competitors to know how to speak to the customers about it more than anything else. There were a, a number of companies that tried to win the same space as you, but didn't succeed. So in retrospect, what has made you succeed where other, others uh, did not? One big thing was I saw a lot of people approach this market thinking that they need to disintermediate the PR person because they'd be entrepreneurs or not really understand PR. And they'd be like, what do we need these PR people for? We're going to build software. This intermediates the PR person. That's their whole go-to-market message. We were always like, you know what? Actually, the PR person's really important. It's real work, just like any other business function, we're going to arm them with great solutions and really understand the market. And I, I think we actually had a competitive advantage being around the media world already, partially from being in New York at the time, partially from just interacting a lot with that world from the shorties and everything else. And we, we thought like, hey, we, we're going to really honor the journalist and the PR person in our product and give them a lot more tool. So I think that was one big part of it. And then I think another two is patience, because I've seen a lot of other people, they try to attack the market really quickly. And we're almost 15 years in, and like we were talking about many years to a million. So if someone starts off where they're like doing the venture model, like we need to see explosive growth in year one, like a lot of them I'd see would launch and just flame out too quickly. And they weren't willing to put in the time to really understand the market and gain the trust needed. Greg mentions being patient for growth. 
In a recent interview, Adam Robinson, founder of Retention.com, mentions avoiding the same mistakes. I hired way too many people way too quickly that can create metrics and indicators that are very misleading, that are far more positive than they actually are. We were overselling people for five months. How painful it is to have that come crashing down on you the next five months. <laughs> As every deal that you close is contracting in your face, people are pissed off, they're canceling. It's absolutely terrible. When you go that fast, you don't have the proper system set up. You don't know how to manage an organization that size. It was all horrible. Looking back at your experience building Muckrack over since 2009, what are your top three pieces of advice for fellow B2B founders? Number one, I'd say just spend a lot of time with customers. I was personally answering the phone and responding to every customer support email for a lot of time, plus going out and meeting with them in person. And I just learned so much. There were a couple of assumptions I had right at the beginning, but for the most part, I didn't know what the day-to-day -day of a PR professional was like. And it was only through spending a lot of time with them that uh, I really understood it. Number two, I'd say really focus on... It's kind of cliche to say build a good team and all that, but really make sure that you're always thinking like what team does the company need at the current scale, at the next scale, getting the right people in who've seen the next level and by the same time retaining the good people you have. And I think it's good to have a healthy tension between the people who've, who are coming in new and have seen the next scale and your old, your old timers that people have been with you since the early days and live and breathe the company and ethos. You don't want to have only one or only the other. And then number three, I, I think to the extent possible, will definitely be capital efficient, especially in today's market. If you're able to bootstrap it like we were, that's the best because it creates so much discipline in the business. It creates a lot of focus because you're not having to spend time going out to raise money and managing a board and all that kind of jazz. And then it also makes the economics a whole lot better. That's another area that I've seen a lot of other people go wrong. If you don't know how big your market is, not having a lot of capital creates all this optionality. I've seen a lot of people where their business will peter out at a certain scale. And then it's whether or not your cap table makes all the difference if you've taken money or not. Because I've seen some businesses that cap out around 10 million, they raise venture and then it's a tragedy because these venture investors are like, hey, I thought I was betting on the next Google. You've capped out at 10 million. If we sell it tomorrow, I'm going to lose money or just make my money back but I need to show my investors that I've got the Midas touch and I'm going to find the next Google. I don't care that it, it's a 10 million now, make a bet to become a billion dollar company or blow it up. But anything in the middle, I don't care. And that kind of sucks if you're an entrepreneur because the flip side is, let's say you get to 10 million and you own the whole business, even if you can just run it at a 20% profit margin, which is a baseline most people expect of any business, that's 2 million a year. What if you could do a 30% profit margin. There are software businesses that have a 50% profit margin. All of a sudden you're taking home millions every year. And if you're stuck at, at 10 million, like that's not a bad thing. If every year you're making many millions, then you could afford to pay your employees a lot. You know, you can incentivize them. It serve your customers. It should be an awesome life. We didn't stop there because we knew there was a bigger market, but had we discovered that the market wouldn't support us being any more than 10 million, it would have still been an awesome outcome. So I think it's thinking about capital efficiency in part because it, it's good discipline, but also in part because it creates this optionality 
and makes it more likely you'll have a good outcome by a definition that's reasonable to any normal scrappy entrepreneur. So how did Muckrack win? One, understanding both sides of PR market needs. Our whole thing was starting with the journals and then getting into PR gave us a lot of advantages because we have all these journalists using our platform, whereas with all of our competitors, they just went straight for the PR industry, but never established a connection with journalists. Two, patient capital efficient growth strategy. Not having a lot of capital creates all this optionality. But if you do it right, I think it's much more rewarding. It was always just slow, slow and steady. And three, using customer feedback for product evolution. We never shipped a feature people didn't want. We were so plugged into what the customers wanted. What we would build next was always what the customers were screaming for. That's how you win. I'm Pep Lau. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.